Good morning, church. How's everyone doing today? Good? Awesome. Guys, uh, it is a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, as BJ said, my name is Kel Castro. I'm the student pastor here at Austin Oaks Church, and it is an honor to be able to share a word with you today. Uh, as we read earlier during our worship time, we're going to be going, continuing our series on the book of Revelation uh, with a talk on the church of Smyrna, and that's not to be confused with the Smyklas. The Smyklas are an awesome family here at AOC. The Smyrna is a city in Turkey. So make sure we got that distinction, right? If you've missed out on the past few weeks uh, of this series, or if you just need a refresher, the book of Revelation is a vision, a revelation, if you will, given to the apostle John while he's exiled on an island called Patmos uh, from Jesus, where he is being told a, a bunch of things that are and are yet to come. And Jesus tells him to write down everything he sees and to send them to seven very real and very specific churches that existed in real cities uh, that also represent all churches over all time. Uh, in chapters two and three, where we're going to be today and over the next few weeks, uh, John pins a specific message to each church from Jesus. Jesus has some things he wants to say to each church. And each letter, uh, Jesus reveals a special quality about himself. Uh, and then he commends the churches for the things they're doing well. He rebukes them for the things they've done poorly. He gives them a command to follow uh, and the consequence that will occur if they don't. And then he tells them of the reward that awaits them. And that's the base formula for five of these seven churches. But two of them, Smyrna and Philadelphia, not to be confused, the one in Pennsylvania, uh, they receive no bad news. It's just good news for them, right? But with the church in Smyrna, things aren't exactly peachy keen, right? It's not a like, hey, great job, keep it up kind of message. It's more of a, you've suffered, you're gonna suffer more kind of message, which is not like, not a super ideal for what we want to hear. Uh, but when I started studying for this passage, I immediately kind of felt a kinship with the church in Smyrna because I felt like their situation really represented my experiences as a millennial Dallas Cowboys fan. Because <laughs> Jesus knows my suffering. He knows the tribulation I experience every postseason, and I'm reminded of it more and more on Super Bowl Sunday. He knows the poverty of winning that we have, even though Jerry Jones and the organization are rich. He knows the slander that occurs on every news talk show, and the destiny of the Dallas Cowboy fan is to suffer and be faithful unto death, which I'm going to be real, is not a, it's not a, like a cause worthy of dying for let alone like just remaining a fan of the team, right? In actuality, Smyrna as a church is a really difficult church for us in America to really understand and resonate with. We don't generally like suffering or persecution of any sort. And I'd argue that we have a tendency to view suffering and persecution more as a loss of God's favor or a removal of God's favor than we do, we, than we view uh, suffering and persecution as a way of our, like a display of our faithfulness or even a way of experiencing Jesus more. And I'm gonna be completely forthright up front. I feel like I am one of the least qualified people to be teaching on persecution because I like my comfort 
I like being in control. I like having wealth and influence. I don't like losing friends. I don't like suffering and persecution. And I have a hard time wanting to lose those things and to be persecuted. And truthfully, I have experienced very minimal persecution in my own life. But basically the entire letter to the church in Smyrna is about their suffering and persecution and how it's only going to get worse. And so what can we in Austin, Texas in 2024 take away from this letter? So when we look at the city of Smyrna, I think it's gonna be helpful for us as we understand the context of the city that we will understand the content of Jesus's message for the church even more. So Smyrna is a church, it's a city, uh, it's a beautiful port city that is very wealthy, very thri- it's thriving, it's a very populous city in what we would call modern day Turkey. It's the Roman province of Asia. Uh, and it was so renowned for its splendor that it was nicknamed the crown of Rome or the flower of Rome or the crown of Asia, the flower of Asia. And it was this incredible city, lots of wealth uh, that, you know, they thrived and did all these things. Um, and they were a very, they were a city that was very proud to be Roman. They loved them some Rome. They had an adage or a motto amongst all the people that was Rome first in all things. Right? They had tons of temples that were dedicated to different gods and goddesses, but in particular, they had temples that were dedicated to Dea Roma, who is the spirit or the goddess of Rome. They had temples dedicated to Caesar Augustus and Caesar Tiberius and the Empress Lydia, the Roman Senate itself. Big fans of Rome, these Smyrnans, right? Part of this was because they felt like they represented the Roman qualities of power and wealth more and like, and vitality and all these things more so than anyone else did. Part of this is because in 600 BC, give or take, their city had actually been destroyed. And then in around 300 BC, it had been rebuilt. So not only are they proud of their Romanness and their power, their wealth and influence, but they're proud of their resurrection qualities. And all of these things kind of help us understand why Jesus introduces himself the way that he does to this church. In chapter two, verse eight of Revelation says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus is wanting to make sure that this church settled in the midst of a city who considered Rome first in all things, considered themselves first in Rome and who were so proud of their own Romanness, of their you know, strength and their wealth and their splendor, of their resurrection history, that Jesus himself, not Rome nor anyone else, is the first and the last, the one that holds all things together and provides life for all things, and that Jesus himself, not Rome nor Smyrna nor anyone else, is who truly conquered death with life. Jesus is first and last. Jesus died and came back to life. When we look at the church of Smyrna, when we look at Jesus's introduction to them, it should immediately put us as readers, as believers, as members of the, you know, capital C church as a whole on high alert. 
Because I think the question that we have to ask ourselves now and throughout this sermon is who or what do we love most and allow to dictate our thoughts, our beliefs, and our actions? Who do we love most? Who do we allow to actually guide us and direct us? Who or what is it that we put first in our lives? What do we depend on most or put our hope in? Is Rome first in all things for us? Is it our country? Is it our government? Is it a political party or a political figure? Say, provide for us. Is it our families or our businesses? Is it ourselves and our own abilities to accumulate wealth and comfort and all the things that we need and like? Hopefully it's Jesus, but if we're honest, Jesus is probably very rarely the first and last thing that we think of and consider when we make every decision and when we establish every value in our lives, nor is he the eternal comfort for our suffering. But he was for the church in Smyrna. As I mentioned, almost every church Jesus has John writes to gets a but I have this against you clause. One of the churches, that's basically all they get. Uh, But with Smyrna, this isn't the case. He only gives them commendation and encouragement, though when we read the letter for ourselves, those are probably not the words that we would initially use to describe what Jesus says to them. Verse nine, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus's praise and his affirmation for the church in Smyrna is their tribulation, their poverty, and their slander, which truthfully doesn't sound all that great to me. Like other churches are gonna get commended for their righteous works or their ability to uphold truth. Smyrna gets commended for their tribulation, their poverty, and their slander. If you, were, if you were here a couple months ago, I preached uh, on a word, uh, it's the Greek word flipsis, which if you don't know, that's my new favorite word. Just say it to yourselves real quick, right? Flipsis, it's a weird word. That word is the same word used here for tribulation. And what that means as a refresher is a crushing pressure that exists between two opposing forces that are colliding and creating this tension, this pressure, this flipsis in the middle. That's what's, that's what's happening with the church in Smyrna. You have the Roman empire and the kingdom of God colliding in this city. And this church in Smyrna is experiencing this tribulation, this pressure, this suffering, this persecution. As we said, Smyrna, would have been like the shining jewel in the crown of the Roman empire. And so expectations to worship Caesar as Lord and participate in all of these you know, pagan rituals and activities would have been incredibly prevalent. And so the consequences for those who refuse to worship Caesar and who refuse to participate in all these things would be high. To frame it another way, Great tribulation, pressure, suffering, persecution would exist for anyone who refused to worship Caesar as Lord and participate in these associated practices that we in the church would call sinful. 
that is what is happening to this Smyrna church. This is the reality that John is writing to them to. But Jesus says, hey, not just your tribulation do I praise you for, I also know of your poverty. And that Greek word poverty there is pitocheia, which like, I'm gonna be real, no judgment on pronunciation there. We don't in English put P's and T's together, except in words like pterodactyl or pteries, where you can grab lunch after church, right? (laughs) That's just not what we do. So you just take that word for whatever you think it is, right? If you wanna, whatever, right? But that word poverty, it does not mean scraping by. It doesn't mean, well, I paid rent and we have enough money for food, but we can't go to Disneyland. It does not mean that we just can't afford certain goods. That word poverty means destitution and destitution to the point of beggary, that you have so little, that you have nothing, no money, no way of accumulating wealth or gaining material possession, that the only way that you can survive is begging. That is where our church uh, in Smyrna is existing. As Pastor Brandon talked about last week, there's these things in Rome that existed at the time called guilds. And basically what that was is if you wanted to participate in the economic systems that were in place, if you wanted to have a job, you needed to be a member of a certain guild over a certain type of work, right? So like the shipbuilders guild or you know the candle makers guild, whatever, right? You had to be a part of this guild in order to have a job, to make money. But to be a part of the guild, to be a member of the guild, you had to participate in things like Caesar worship or any of these associated rituals and practices. And so that meant to be a follower of Christ, you had to choose between worshiping false idols, idolatry, which if you weren't aware, is sin, right? It's one of the really bad ones. Worshiping another thing other than God or poverty. And the church in Smyrna chose poverty. Daryl Johnson writes, no one in Smyrna should have been poor. This is a city of wealth and of financial opportunity. No one should be poor. But the fact is, Christians were poor. Followers of Christ could do business with no one. Their homes and their workplaces were ransacked and destroyed and they were made pariahs and outcasts by the other residents of the city, all because they stood firm in their faith in Christ, they refused to worship Caesar, and they continued to hold on to their love for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, I know of your tribulation, I know of your poverty, and I also know of the slander or blasphemy that you receive at the hands of this group that say they are Jews but are not. And Jesus actually goes so far to call them a synagogue of Satan, which is a crazy insult, right? And basically what this group is, and most likely they are a group of unbelieving Jews, a a group of of people who externally are holding on to, you know, Mosaic law. They're holding on probably more in particular to the Pharisaic rules and regulations concerning things like the Sabbath. But internally, they don't actually love God. They're not actually following God. They just are, you know, trying to look Jewish externally so that they can kind of remain in fellowship with each other. 
And so they've allowed Satan to kind of take a foothold in their heart and begin directing their steps. Now the Jews at this time in Rome, they had a special allowance where they were not required to worship Caesar as Lord. They could kind of continue to worship in their own way. But then all of a sudden, this group of Christians in Smyrna begins causing a stink in the nostrils of the Roman authorities because they are not worshiping Caesar. And because there was, uh, especially in the late first century, such a close tie between Christianity and Judaism where most Christians either were previously Jewish or at least were, had a strong connection to Jewish people, the Jews at the time did not want their special rights and privileges taken away. They didn't want their social standing in Rome taken away. And so what they do is they become informants to the Roman authorities, they become snitches who are saying, hey, these people should be worshiping Caesar and they're not, get them. And that's not only hypocritical because they themselves are not worshiping Caesar, but that's blasphemous. They're saying these people should be worshiping Caesar. And so they are blaspheming, they're hypocritical and they're slandering the church in Smyrna who is just going to continue to suffer, not only at the hands of the Roman authorities, but also of this group of Jews who you would assume there would be kind of like a close partnership with. And after hearing all this, I, someone who loves a good story of rescue and redemption, and I would expect Jesus to continue his letter by saying, fear not children, Your cries have reached my ears. I have heard and I see. I know the pressure that is upon your shoulders. I will lift it. I know the poverty that you suffer and I will provide wealth. I know the slander that you receive and I will provide truth and justice. Amen and amen. That's not what Jesus says. In verse 10, we read, do not fear what some of you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Amen, church. Do you feel encouraged today? Do you think that the church in Smyrna did? Hey guys, I know you're suffering. It looks bad. It looks real bad. I know that you're being persecuted by the Romans. I know that you're, you know, you have no money or possessions. I know that you're being slandered by those who should support you, but don't worry. You're gonna suffer even more. (laughs) Satan, you, you may have heard of him, the devil, he himself is actually gonna have some of you arrested and thrown into prison, crazy, right? And then all of you are gonna experience a period of extreme and intense testing and tribulation, and some of you might die. So like, do you feel better, church? Jesus does not tell the church in Smyrna that he's going to lift the pressure that they are under. He does not tell them that he is going to replace their poverty with wealth. He does not tell them that truth and justice will prevail over slander. Instead, he tells them that things are gonna get worse. They're gonna suffer even more. 
He tells them that while there are those who are physically responsible for their suffering, namely the Romans in this group of unbelieving Jews, the person who is actually pulling the strings and who is guiding all things is Satan. Satan wants to do everything in his power to hurt Jesus, but because he is hitting outside of his weight class, he can't touch Jesus. There is no fight there. He is doing the only thing that he can and that's hurting what Jesus loves, his church. And so Satan is manipulating the religious and political forces that existed in the day to persecute the church in Smyrna, just as we're going to see later on in the book of Revelation that the dragon, Satan, is going to be manipulating the religious and political powers of the day that come in the form of these two beasts to persecute the church as a whole. Jesus tells them that they're going to experience a time of testing and tribulation that will last 10 days. And that number might be literal, but more likely that, like, that number 10 represents a time frame that is perfect and complete, but also limited. It doesn't last forever, but it is a time frame that is complete and intense and perfect. And so what Jesus is telling them is that all of you are going to experience a time of suffering, of persecution, of tribulation that is complete and perfect. And some of you might be martyred for your faith. That word martyr means to die specifically because you are refusing to turn away from your faith. They are going to be murdered for worshiping Jesus and refusing to back down. And despite all this, Jesus gives them two commands. Do not fear and be faithful unto death. He is intentionally allowing this church and this group of believers to exist in the midst of suffering and persecution. And he is telling them, that it is only going to get worse. But he still gives them the commands to fear nothing and to be faithful, no matter what persecution and tribulation awaits them. And that part of the message is really hard for me to understand. Maybe this is hard for all of us to understand. I think this is a truth of the Christian faith that I think the American church as a whole has a really hard time understanding, but also desiring. We don't like suffering, and that might feel like a duh statement, but you see a lot of suffering throughout scripture and commands to do so. We don't like suffering. We don't like poverty. We don't like being slandered. I like when people think true things of me and not false things. And we despise the idea that we might be persecuted for our faith. We hate the idea of persecution so much that just the thought of persecution is enough to set us up in arms. And obviously there are forms of persecution that exist here and now in our world, in the places we live. But we don't have to get to the point that the church of Smyrna was in where they're being faced with imprisonment and torture and murder before we begin feeling that pressure of persecution. 
more often than not, I think that we in the American church generally have one of two reactions when we think of persecution. And obviously this is a generalization, but first, I think we are so terrified of the idea of persecution that we just isolate ourselves completely from anything and anyone that is outside of the church so that we don't ever have to experience anything that is likened to persecution or even just like influence of the, of, of the outside world. We don't wanna even go near things that are outside of the church. Or two, our behavior, the way that we treat people who are outside of the church is so contemptible, so filled with malice and anger and unkindness and pride that when we are told by someone who does not believe in Jesus, I don't like you because of the way you treat me, we take this as righteous vindication and go, persecution, I'm being persecuted. And instead, we should take that as a rebuke on our own behavior. As I mentioned at the very beginning, I think we have a tendency to view suffering and persecution as a loss of favor from God because did not God bless the USA? It's written on our currency. We sing about it in songs. Is America not the promised land flowing with milk and honey? The city on a hill shining as a beacon to everyone else? so that they could know how to live and live well? Shouldn't we be the ones who have all power and influence and wealth so that other people can know how good it is to follow Jesus? The church in Smyrna's situation would make no sense to us at all because if we are faced, when we are faced with the things that they suffer, and and the things that they're suffering is beyond what we experience here. Part of that is a blessing, right? Of things like contempt and hatred from our neighbors, poverty, slander and falsehoods about our names and characters, imprisonment, torture, death, all because of our faith in Christ. If we are faced with those things and when we are, I don't know how many of us would be able to be like the apostle Paul who rejoiced in his sufferings that he experienced for holding fast to the name of Jesus and proclaiming it even though he was being persecuted, that he was imprisoned while writing things like I rejoice in my sufferings, that he's going to be eventually killed for his faith. About 60 years after this letter would have been delivered to the church in Smyrna, there arose a bishop in Smyrna, the guy who would have pastored and shepherded the Christians in Smyrna named Polycarp, who coincidentally or not, was a disciple of the apostle John, the very one who is writing this book. And Polycarp is famous for being martyred for his faith. In the traditional church account of his martyrdom, we see this interaction between Polycarp and the proconsul of Rome, where the proconsul of Rome is like, dude, just worship Caesar and we'll be good. And Polycarp's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. And so the proconsul of Rome says, okay, I'm going to have you torn apart by wild animals. And, pro, and Polycarp says, gotta do what you gotta do. 
And then the proconsul of Rome threatens him. And he says, that's not enough. I will burn you alive. And Polycarp responds, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour. And after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. I don't know how many of us could respond as such. I know my, myself in that situation, I'm just hoping that I'm like, I still love you, Jesus. Like, I'm just, I don't know if I have the wherewithal and the like spiritual fortitude to start spitting spiritual bars where I'm like, you're talking about burning me alive, but you don't know about spiritual fire. Like, I don't know if I could do that. I'm just like, it's gonna hurt so bad, but I love you, Jesus. Jesus tells us in John 15, 19, that we will be hated by the world for being his followers. That because the world hated Jesus, it's also going to hate us. And Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <coughs> Everyone who desires to follow Jesus and live a godly life will be hated and persecuted. And I can tell you right now, it is a rare occasion that I truly feel hated or persecuted by others for believing in Christ. Part of this is because we are incredibly blessed to live in a country where it is not illegal to be Christian. But part of this, if I'm honest, is that I very rarely am bold enough with my faith or take my faith places that I know are going to lead to persecution. I don't want it. While I have never been threatened with imprisonment or torture or being torn apart by wild animals or burned at the stake, this is the reality that faces the church in Smyrna and it's the reality that faces a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today. And while it may be to a less extreme degree here, at least for now, persecution exists here as well for those who are faithful to Christ. As I said earlier, we do not want to be persecuted. But shouldn't we? I know that's a weird question, but hang with me. Shouldn't we want that? Shouldn't we want to be persecuted? At the beginning of Jesus' letter to Smyrna, he introduces himself as the one who died and came back to life. And there is an aspect of Jesus' character that I think we tend to see short-sightedly. We see in Jesus the suffering Savior who endured all things and so that we, when we are hurting and broken, we can call out to Jesus as our comforter. And that is a beautiful truth. But Jesus doesn't just suffer so that we can empathize with someone. Jesus experiences persecution to the degree we could never understand so that we can have life with him. You could basically rewrite the entire letter to the church of Smyrna to be from God to Jesus about his time on earth. Son, I know 
the persecution and the tribulation that you face from the Romans and the Pharisees and all these others, I know that you have chosen a life of poverty, even though you are the Lord of all creation and all things belong to you. I know that you are slandered and despised by those you created and came to save. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Satan will have you arrested and thrown into prison and you will face a time frame of intense persecution and tribulation where you are beaten, mocked, scorned, humiliated, and abandoned by those you love. And ultimately, you will be brutally and painfully murdered on a cross. Be faithful unto death and you will receive, you will wear the crown of life. The beautiful thing that the church in Smyrna knew and understood and was truly being encouraged with in this letter was that by suffering and being persecuted as they were, they would gain a beautiful awareness of who Jesus is beyond what can ever be understood by never having your faith put under pressure. Jesus was and is greater than all creation, deserving of nothing but praise and glory from the very things he created, but he willingly subjected himself to every form of suffering and humiliation and persecution, culminating with his death on the cross, a criminal's death, so that we could be saved from our sins and have life with him. When Jesus came to earth as a baby, he knew that the road he was on would ultimately lead to intense persecution, but he remained faithful anyway. He stayed the course, he suffered, he died, and he did everything necessary to bring us life with him. Why? Because of his intense love for us. Jesus suffered and was persecuted because he loved us. Jesus ends the letter to the church in Smyrna by saying that if the Smyrnans remain faithful in the face of everything that they will endure, he will give them the crown of life and that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. (coughs) Though they may be hated, impoverished, slandered, imprisoned, tortured, and murdered, if they love Jesus enough to hold fast to him, to not kowtow to the, you know, the world that is around them, to not worship another besides Christ, they will receive blessings that far outweigh anything they could suffer. That's why he calls them rich in spite of their literal physical poverty. First, they will know Jesus and understand him in a greater way than could ever be imagined by experiencing the same suffering that he went through. And is there anything greater we could experience than intimate communion with our Lord and Savior and creator? Second, Jesus will give them the crown of life. And this imagery hearkens to the the victory laurels, the laurel wreaths that an athlete would win upon, you know, after struggling and striving and working and putting in all this effort that they would be bestowed a victory laurel. That Jesus says, if you endure, I will be 
I will give you the crown of life that speaks to riches and prosperity and blessing for all of eternity, not because they endured it, but because Jesus endured what he did on the cross. Third, Jesus says that those who suffer, that those who conquer will receive, that they will be uh, counted as conquerors with him and that though their physical lives, their physical deaths potentially would be filled with pain and hurt and suffering, they would be spared all harm, all pain, all suffering, all death that would occur in the second death, the spiritual and eternal and far more important death that because Jesus conquered death with life, we, this church in Smyrna, will be considered conquerors with him. And fourth, their suffering and persecution would serve as a testimony for the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people around them. A fact that has proven true through the course of history as the city of Smyrna still exists today in the city of Izmir, Turkey, a thriving home of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, but a place that is still in the midst of persecution, but that church is still thriving. Those are the blessings and the promises made to the Christians in Smyrna. And those are the exact same promises that are available for us today here, that in persecution and suffering, we can have intimate communion with Christ. We can find victory in the eternal life that he has earned for us that we can conquer death alongside Jesus who first defeated death with life and that we can serve as witnesses of the power and love of the gospel in the lives of those who need it. There's a common saying in the church, you know, church history that the blood of martyrs is what waters the seeds of the church and that's kind of a graphic imagery. But what this means is that when we suffer, when we are persecuted on the name of Jesus, there are few things that serve as a greater witness than those who are willing to be persecuted to the point of death for some so that someone may know Jesus. When we read the letter to the church in Smyrna, it should create a desire in our hearts for things that feel wildly unnatural to desire tribulation, suffering, and persecution. And I don't mean that we should want to be sad or that we should want to lose friends or that we should want you know, the consequences of persecution, but I mean that we should desire the things that are a result of persecution. We should desire those blessings that God is promising to the church in Smyrna. If we as followers of Christ were truly to live as he called us to, to as, as lights in the darkness, then it is inevitable that we will face hatred and persecution. Pastor Brandon posed a question last week that I think is really helpful and will be really helpful for us as we, continuing, as we continue our studies through all of the different churches that John writes to. He asks, are you more in love with Jesus or the idea of Jesus? Do you love Jesus or do you just love the things that come with him? 
my friends are Christians and it's easier, you know, I have, I have wealth and I have influence and all these things because of Jesus. But as soon as those things were to start leaving, would we start seeking for the things that could provide that anywhere else? If we truly love Jesus, if we do take his words as truth, if we do what he has called us to do and live as he has called us to live, we will face persecution. And just as with the church in Smyrna, it may come from those who are outside the church, but it also may come from those who say they are Christians, but are not. When the light shines in the darkness, no matter what the darkness thinks of itself, it is offensive. It is hated, it is rejected, and it is despised. And so will we be if we truly aspire to live godly lives and follow Jesus. I wish it was, but this is not the message where I tell you that Jesus is going to spare us from harm and rejection. Jesus was not. And again, by being persecuted, I don't mean that we are hated because of our own actions and behaviors. And I also don't mean random suffering that might exist in your life. There are real things that hurt and cause damage. Not all things are persecution. But what I mean is that we are hated and despised and rejected because we refuse to worship another besides Jesus. That we define our entire being by Jesus Christ and that someone hates us and despises us because of it. If you seek to follow Christ in your businesses, your schools, your families, your neighborhoods, wherever it is that the Lord may take you, you will endure suffering. Having served in student ministry in Austin for nearly a dozen years, I can tell you that this truth is just as true, if not more so, in our schools than it is anywhere else. Teenagers, you know this. If you, are to, if you were to truly exemplify Christ with your life, follow him, proclaim his name, let him define every thought, action, and belief you take and bring his word to those who don't know him, you would be hated. If we in our workplaces, our places of business, if we chose to operate using Christian values and, and, and upholding the name of Christ everywhere we go, we're gonna face resistance from the people that we are around. Parents, if we choose to raise our children and, and lead and guide our families with Christ as our example in everything we do, that he is our first and last, the person that dictates every single one of our family values and decisions, we will face scrutiny from the people around us who question why we are doing the things we're doing. If we, as a community, as followers of Christ in this church, sought to take his words as truth and, and take his words to heart, to seek to love Jesus with everything we are and to follow his example by sharing the gospel with those we know don't know him, but are desperate for his love and salvation, then we will inevitably be rejected and persecuted by some. But in doing so, in enduring and remaining faithful until the end, be that death or Jesus's return, 
it is also inevitable that we will know and experience intimacy with our Lord Jesus in the beauty of his own suffering, that we will receive the crown of life and know blessings beyond our wildest dreams, that we will be counted as conquerors of death alongside Jesus and reign with him for all eternity, and that there will be those around us who will see, hear, and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ in life and salvation. So my question for us, church, how much do we love Jesus? Do we love Jesus enough to suffer and be persecuted for him? Do we love Jesus enough to want to? I know that this is a message that may be hard to understand, especially because the degree of variance between what was happening in the church of Smyrna and what happens here is obviously vast, but that does not mean that there is not a cost for following Jesus here and now. Being faithful and obedient to Christ in all areas of your life might mean making drastic choices or decisions on how you live, what activities you're involved with, what comforts you pursue, and more. Being faithful and obedient to Christ might also mean that you're losing friends, that you miss out on opportunities, that you are hated and slandered and rejected. But is your love for Jesus greater than your fear of what the consequences of loving him might be? Or do you fear that choosing Jesus over something else might cost you? How much do you love Jesus, church? As we close out, we have people in our church who would love to pray for you and talk through anything that you might be feeling and experiencing. We as a church, we want to be a people who are for one another, who love one another well and can encourage one another. And so if you would like prayer or if you just, if something's on your heart that you feel like you have a question to ask or if something is going on that you just want to talk to someone about during this song or during the next, I'd encourage you, please come forward. We'd love to have someone pray for you and talk to you and, and, and engage with whatever the spirit might be putting on your heart. And as we did last week, at the end of this response song, I'm gonna come back up. I will formally dismiss us. But during that time, if you still need prayer, if you still want to talk to someone, there will still be space available and a time available for you to do so. If you want to receive any word or prayer, please come forward. But with that, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for loving us so much, for giving us your word, for allowing us to just be here today in a place where we are safe to worship. Jesus, thank you for suffering and being persecuted so that we could have life with you. It feels weird to pray this, Jesus, but I pray that whatever suffering we may endure would be because of your name. It wouldn't be because of our own choices or our own, our own you know, actions or whatever it might be, but that it would be 
because we love you so dearly that we are defining our lives by you. Spirit, if there is stirring in someone's heart, wanting to understand this message more, wanting to know you more, wanting to experience what this life in you could look like, I pray that you would give them the boldness and courage to talk to someone right now. God, you are so good. We love you. We pray these things in your holy and amazing name. Amen.